welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Josh Cincinnati and I chat with Jill Carlson, a long-standing expert in the blockchain space who was previously at Slow Ventures. We discuss Jill's journey into crypto, how the old financial system compares with DeFi on the metrics of transparency and privacy. We explore the concept of selective disclosure, Jill's move towards ZK, and how to get privacy into existing systems. We also look at the role of regulation and more. But before we kick off, I want to encourage you to sign up for the ZK Mesh newsletter. This is a newsletter that we send out every month. Next issue goes out at the beginning of August. It's full of updates and new research in the ZK space. I've added a link in the show notes. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority is a leader in the security of distributed systems. They provide security consulting services, develop open source products, and contribute to the advancement of learning and research in the field. This month, Least Authority published a white paper on Zero Knowledge Access Passes, or ZCAPs, a protocol that enables users to access services without revealing personal information. Collecting personal data can be incredibly valuable to some services, which is why it's been compared to like new oil. But data can just as often be a liability or toxic waste to others. The white paper explains the protocol to technical and non-technical audiences alike. Least Authority has also reached a notable milestone this month with the completion of their 100th security audit. To read their published audits, which include multiple projects on Ethereum, Tezos, and other notable ecosystems, or to check out the ZCAPS white paper, visit their website at leastauthority.com. We've also added the link to this in the show notes. So thank you again, Least Authority. Now here is our conversation with Jill. First off, I want to welcome Josh back to the show. Hi, Josh. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Good to be back. Yeah. And for this episode, you're going to be co-hosting with me as we interview Jill. So welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. So I think starting off, I actually want to do a quick catch up with Josh because I haven't actually seen you in, I think, like four months or so. And so I want to hear what's new with you. What have you been up to since we last spoke back in, I think, February or so. It, yeah, it was that long ago. Um, I don't I don't remember if I mentioned it back then, but so I'm now advising uh, and on the board of a few projects. Uh, I am advising the SIA Foundation. SIA, for those who don't know, is a decentralized storage uh, protocol that is, is actually, it's getting a lot of great pickup. You know, one of these projects meant to help decentralize the web, in this case, the sort of CDN layer of, of the web. And then I, I also, and this is something I think we're going to talk about a little bit more in the episode, is uh, I joined the board of the MENA Foundation alongside Jill and a few others. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about MENA later, but obviously I'm very excited about that project as well. Cool. Um, but to be you know honest, the most exciting project in my life right now is <laughs> the fact that my wife and I welcomed our uh, second child into the world just last month. And that has also been the most time-consuming project of mine. <laughs> I'm sure. um, but yeah, he's he's a real, real cute little baby, and just going through all those those newborn steps with him, and that's just going to consume my life for a couple more months, uh, and and you know, then then decades, yeah. as, as we raise raise him. Um, so you you've but yeah, you've been a little busy, maybe outside of the cryptosphere. Um, but I do want to mention something you mentioned back in our first episode of this year. We did sort of like a what looking forward episode with James and Tarun. And you made a comment about you were like, we're at the beginning of a run of a bull run. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, what? Because at the time it was like, it's too high. Mm -hmm. um, you actually you called it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I guess I did. That <laughs> might be the first price related prediction I got. I got right. Um, which of course I never profited from because that's just the way of the world for me. Mm. But, but then, um, I was, I kind of can't believe how, how high things got and how honestly how high things still are is sort yeah. of crazy, but yeah, it's been a, a nutty six months for sure. Cool. All right, Jill, I want to kind of say hello. I want to welcome you. 
I invited you to come on the show in part. I mean, I, before this, I really only knew you from Twitter. Um, I've <laughs> always read insightful posts. And what I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to invite you on to the show now is I noticed you were moving closer and closer, or you've, you kind of entered the ZK space. And so a lot of your content starts to overlap with what I'm working on. And I think that's what I want to do with this interview is understand a little bit what has your journey been to the ZK space. So yeah, I think let's kick off. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to dive in. I mean, you actually, Anna, have been a key part of my journey into the ZK space. Despite having run my own podcast at one point, despite being sort of big in my own way and, and knowledgeable, I think, about the podcasting space, I don't actually listen to that many podcasts on a regular and consistent basis. But yours is one that I do. And so cool. I'm kind of fangirling over here to be on <laughs> to be on this show that I've listened to for hours and hours and hours of. And it's it's funny because I've gotten to know your voice so well. <laughs> Uh, both in, in the sense, in the metaphorical sense of your voice in the space talking about all of this stuff, but also very literally your voice. And now to be able to put kind of the face to the voice, it's it's very cool. So thanks for having me. There is something funny about being a podcaster, audio only podcaster, where people once in a while will recognize my voice. And I have heard the comment, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> Which I was like, yeah, me too, man. <laughs> But anyway, um, but yeah, that's it's better. That's better, though, Anna, than being known for your Twitter, where you just kind of don't know what to say when people are like, oh, I knew you on Twitter. You're like, I do I apologize right now? Do I say, you know, do I try to make it seem like I'm less insufferable in real life? But then that might not be actually true as it plays out. <laughs> I know there's so much more to you than than your persona on Twitter. Um, I actually would love to start sort of from the beginning. We we did have one meeting before this where we got to talk a little bit about where you what you were doing before. But I think for the listeners, like I kind of want to get a bit of an intro to you and what you were doing, maybe a little bit pre crypto and what led you into it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So let's see. Pre crypto, I was pre crypto. It was 2012, 2013. Uh, I was working as a bond trader at Goldman Sachs. I was a few years out of college, and I'd done the pretty standard route, I would say, for a liberal arts major out of college, which is to jump on, at least at the time <laughs> from where I was coming from, it was to jump on one of two or three bandwagons. It was either to go to law school, which was not going to happen for me. <laughs> it was to go into consulting, which I considered, but I didn't end up getting offers for any of the big consulting firms, or it was to go to Wall Street. And um, both of my parents had worked on Wall Street. You know, I kind of grew up around the markets. I grew up with CNBC on TV and Bloomberg News and, you know, my my parents reading the FT around the breakfast table. And so I had some exposure and interest to all manner of things finance that way. But I hadn't studied finance at all formally. I'd taken sort of, you know, intro to economics courses, but I was a history major. Mm. Um but lo and behold, I, I ended up on a bond trading desk. Uh, I was trading bonds and then derivatives, so credit default swaps, that kind of thing. This was just sort of post-08 crisis, you know, a few years post-crisis, just to set the scene, set the context a little bit. So Wall Street was going through all kinds of upheavals. And, you know, it was this sort of environment where most of the people around me, of course, were older than me, had been on Wall Street for a number of years. And, um, you know, they were all kind of grumpy about the way that things were changing in terms of bonuses being cut, in terms of uh, new regulations uh, coming in and, and really changing kind of the paradigm that they had known and grown up in and built their careers in. And so that was a lot of the context that uh, sort of got me thinking about just financial systems and, you know, the structures of these things and why they are the way that they are. And yeah, kind of sets the stage for, for how I ended up getting into crypto. You just mentioned you had studied history. Yeah. This, by the way, is like one of my big hobbies. I never studied history formally. I did a bit of art history, but I 
like throughout my 20s, I basically did a self-study constantly. Here in Berlin, there's like a lot of great museums and I, you know, I've traveled around Greece and Rome. Like I've done, I've done a lot of the classics. Oh, so jealous. Um, So I saw, I mean, I saw kind of like in doing a bit of research for this, that you had written your thesis on something to do with Rome. But what I want to understand is like, how does that transition into finance like you just sort of mentioned that there's these paths for like liberal arts but like did you bring anything with oh, you? I mean that's that's kind of the joke is that it, it you know there's no way I think to spin it in which it very directly translates into finance you know you're bringing me back to my job interviews for these things and I'm trying to piece together <laughs> like how on earth I made this degree in ancient Greek and Latin languages and and histories somehow relevant to these these jobs that I was interviewing for that was that was sort of the running joke but you know I would say that there are a lot of lessons of history just more broadly that once you're aware of that history whether it's through formal study or whether it's through what you're talking about of just kind of informal you know reading about it and being exposed to it you can't help but sort of mirror things onto what's going on uh, totally. today. You know, we can get get into all of that, but you know, there are things around like the third century crisis of the Roman Empire, which was this great period of upheaval, and you know, when a lot of people start to kind of plot the decline and fall of the Roman Empire from that. I think that you could map onto you know, yeah, geopolitics today, and then you know, there's more, there's more kind of concrete things. I would love to get into the parallels with crypto, where you know, you're talking about these ancient civilizations experimenting with governance and design, communications and networking, you know, across these broad areas without the technology that we have today. So that's a whole rabbit hole that we can go down, but I'm also not <laughs> going to sit here and pretend like my knowledge of, of, you know, the middle voice in ancient Greek in any way contributed <laughs> to any success on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's dive into what I think a lot of the listeners are here for. I feel like we may need to have another like history session, maybe over drinks sometime. But um, okay, so you're working as a banker, broker, a bond trader, yeah. bond trader, yeah. and yeah. you started to look around. You started to kind of observe changes, and you were thinking, like, basically help help us understand where was the shift towards crypto. What was the moment or what was it that got you into it? So specifically, I would say the thing that got me into it was um, I was working with Latin American debt and derivatives, and therefore I was working with a lot of colleagues based in Latin America, and specifically Argentina, which at the time was going through a default and a restructuring. I think it was like their third restructuring in two or three decades. Just a lot of upheaval, uh, very high inflation rates in Argentina at the time. Also, capital controls were in place. So people were not able to freely move their money offshore from the country. And all of these dynamics, I mean, first of all, yeah, going back to sort of historical perspective for a second, you know, you can kind of see these things playing out into a crisis for the country, just, you know, knowing a little bit about how these things have played out, both specifically for Argentina in the past, but also for other countries that have gone through similar. And a lot of my colleagues down in Argentina were, you know, aware of these dynamics and being very proactive about it and were looking for any way to get their money out of the country and and diversified and offshore, you know, ahead of what they thought would be a hard default restructuring again. And again, continued inflation. And so they got into Bitcoin. This was sort of early 2013, late 2012. And you know, I was catching up with them every morning, kind of the first thing you do, very bleary eyed, you're getting to the desk at 6am, especially as the most junior person there. The first thing you're doing is you're getting on the phone with the folks in other time zones who can update you on the markets. So I'd spend, you know, an hour every morning talking to these brokers of mine uh, in Argentina. And their enthusiasm for Bitcoin, I was initially so skeptical, because I at the time had only ever heard of Bitcoin in the context of darknet markets and, you know, kind of idiot friends of mine in college buying drugs online (laughs) with it and whatever. But there, you know, I was convinced by them, okay, this is a really interesting thing. This is enabling something in a real economic way for people who've never been able to do this before. You know, these friends of mine would have had 
very few other options readily accessible to them to get their money offshore. And, you know, Bitcoin was that. And so it was through that lens that I was like, all right, there's there's something interesting here. And so with that, I kind of fell down the crypto rabbit hole. What did it mean for you to sort of start working in the space? Like, what did you do? This is actually kind of maybe a question to, to everyone out there, too. It's like when you start in it, what, like either you join a company, but if you don't immediately join a project, like what, what is it? Actually, what did you do? Did you join something right away or did you freelance? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's such a funny thing. It's sort of like, oh, when do you start counting from? Like, I've actually struggled with this. <laughs> People ask me, when did you get into crypto? And I'm like, well, do I count from when I first bought Bitcoin or do I count from, you know, when I first decided that I was going to make this really not just my career, but like my life? <laughs> um, yeah. Or do I start from, you know, the first job that I had? I guess what I would start from here was, yeah, kind of the decision point of, okay, I want to commit myself to this and pivot, you know, my professional life in this direction. And that came while I was in grad school. So after a couple of years uh, on the bond trading desk at Goldman, I started applying to grad school programs in economics and kind of international finance and politics and that intersection with, at the time that I was applying, a view towards doing a master's, maybe even a PhD program in this space, and then coming back and working at a big fancy hedge fund in New York that was, you know, covering, again, these sort of emerging markets countries and living happily ever after in Greenwich, Connecticut. And all of my friends in New York still <laughs> joke that I got lost on the way to Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> um, which indeed I did because basically I showed up at this, this master's degree program that again was supposed to just be on kind of mainstream finance and politics and economics, stuff that I hadn't studied in undergrad. I wanted to fill that gap. By the time I got there, I'd taken the summer off. So I got into this program, wrapped up my work with Goldman, took the summer off. By the time I got there, I went into the professors on the first day who were advising and supervising the program. And I was like, okay, I know that this is not what I applied to do, but I want to study this Bitcoin thing. Because I think that this is this is a thing. This was 2015, I guess. You know, the likes of the IMF were just starting to pay attention to it at that point. And Thank God they were, because I think that that was the only data point that I had to go into these professors with concretely to be like, mm. let me study this. And um, I ended up writing a dissertation on the use of Bitcoin to evade capital controls. So this very thing that got me into the space, this very thing that I'd seen live. And uh, that was my first sort of formal work in the space. And then following that, or during that program, really, I started applying to every job that there was out there in the crypto space, which of course there were only like, I don't know, 15 companies that existed <laughs> total, I think at the time. And basically none of them replied to me for like nine months. And then it was, uh, it was sort of a deus ex machina moment where out of nowhere in the, in the last week or so of, of the master's degree program, I ended up getting a job in Silicon Valley. So that was kind of that journey. Cool. Speaking as someone who, who kind of entered into the, the industry, again, with a very fuzzy definition of entered, yeah. I also don't know exactly how to define it. But, but you know, for, for, I think for me, the promise of the space or the promise of the industry is still very much tied with that original idea this, that exists this money or these financial rails that are outside the control of any given governing body mm. uh, in the traditional sense. And I'm wondering for you, Jill, like, do you feel like that vision is still kind of what, what is, you know, both exciting about what's happening in the industry or has it changed or morphed as you've been here for, you know, as long as you have? Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point, Josh. And I think that for me, from the outset, there have always been a few different visions of what this technology, cryptocurrency, blockchain, whatever can offer. And the one that we just kind of covered sort of my, the origin story, I guess, of my thinking around is exactly that, you know, it's this technology that enables people to transact and interact financially outside of the traditional system and is maybe in particular serving those who are disenfranchised by the traditional system. And that has always been sort of one 
thread or theme for me that I think I've been very convinced by. And that has always in many ways been kind of my own ground truth of like, why are we all here? What is this all about? You know, if nothing else, I believe that Bitcoin and similar technologies are going to persist because they offer this sort of escape hatch for people. I think, though, that there's also another thread that is worth mentioning because I think that it overlaps more in many ways with sort of the privacy and the ZK angle and a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the space over the last several years, which is not necessarily an alternative to the traditional financial system, but almost like a supplement to it or the traditional financial system just in a better and more efficient and more interesting and more creative form. And that's how I think of, for example, DeFi. That's how I think of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, you know, which are getting a lot of sort of hype and attention right now. You know, even things like NFTs, a lot of the creative use cases really don't have much to do with enfranchising the disenfranchised or offering this alternative um, sort of, you know, exterior path to, to transacting and financial interactions. But they're just these more creative ways of interacting and transacting that get unlocked by all of this. But again, those ways, it's worth mentioning, you know, DeFi... I think is likely to be heavily regulated by the end of the day in much the mm. same way that, you know, I was there sitting on a trading desk watching all of these Dodd-Frank regulations and, you know, Basel three capital limitations and so forth come into the Wall Street marketplace. I could very well imagine talking to your kids, my kids, whatever, in 30, 50 years about, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, DeFi was the Wild West before we had all of these regulations and controls around it. And I think that that's totally valid, too. I think that's actually fine if it ends up like that. I don't think that that takes away from, again, a lot of the really cool and valuable and creative use cases that are getting unlocked by it. Yeah, I think you're right that there's this uh, you know, I think it's totally fine if that emerges that way and there's some smart regulation that comes with it so that we're not all yield farming, only terrible, <laughs> long tail nonsense that results in everything, you know, the financial system collapsing every It's great while it lasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, my yams are gone and now I can't, my checks are bouncing. How did that happen? Not my uh, yams, but- <laughs> come on. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, like you know, I I think that that's that's generally a positive for the that industry, you know, part of the industry growing up. But the thing that I, I and I know is is sort of near and dear to your heart as well as mine is the prospect of that regulation uh, effectively enabling more surveillance capitalism, right? Either privately or through you know the governing regulatory bodies, and it's it's yeah. it almost seems when you look at all of. Um, not, not that I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in, you know, U.S. financial regulation, but I certainly like know enough of the history to know that every, every time there, there seems to be a law put in place meant to protect consumers in some way or to prevent, you know, criminal activity, stuff like the Bank Secrecy Act, for example. With that comes this tacit acknowledgement that, oh, you are going to be much more surveilled than you were before, potentially even, you know, passively. And, and I'm wondering, like, to what degree you think it's possible for DeFi to evolve that way without bringing with it all of these, what I view as, like, kind of foundational sins of the traditional regulatory framework that we have. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I don't know if you just teed this up intentionally, but I feel like you've just perfectly <laughs> teed up this answer that that I'll give you, which loops it all back <laughs> to sort of zero knowledge and, and privacy and yeah. all of that, which is yeah. that I think that in many ways, my experience, albeit brief, of working on Wall Street kind of radicalized me in many ways about my views wow. <laughs> with regards to this. I'm like, <laughs> this system is so messed up and it's so prone to human yeah. error. And, you know, there's all of this sort of compliance burden and overhead being put into things like KYC and AML. And it's not actually really clear if you look at the numbers around it and you look at the output of how much good that's actually doing, whereas it's mm-hmm. very clear that that is 
keeping a lot of people out of the financial system Mm. who maybe should or could have access to it. And it's also creating exactly as you said, Josh, this sort of surveillance state around money and financial flows. And, you know, what's, what's the old trope, right? Follow the money. Like money has become the choke point for controlling and enforcing against criminal activity. But that comes with it, you know, all of these implications around our own rights to privacy. And I think that that is what so fascinates me about the whole zero knowledge space and around the innovations of of privacy and the breakthroughs in cryptography that are enabling all of this is that we can now rethink what we have to share in order to prove that we are not engaging in criminal activity or that, you know, we are not, we are not doing things that I think that we can probably mostly all agree on. You know, we can get into sort of the fine-tuned debate of of the libertarians in our space who would say, well, you know, Jill, you have to go all the way to the heart of it and say that the problem is that, you know, the government shouldn't have control over any of it to begin with. I don't actually believe that. I think that there are certain things that, again, probably most of us can all agree on. We don't want those types of activities taking place, and it's actually maybe even good that we can trace and track some of this. But again, I want to be able to prove those things by sharing with banks, enforcement, agents, government, whoever, as little as possible. And I think that that's where a lot of the really interesting breakthroughs are going to happen and start to come through here. And this is where the zero knowledge proof, because sort of the advent of it and the inclusion of it in blockchain systems, it starts to offer what you're describing. Because I guess before, even though, I mean, there have been attempts through other means. I mean, there is this really compelling idea that you can prove something to be true without revealing anything else. Simple idea here. But like, if you can do that, is there a way to function within those systems and like actually also potentially show you know, show your honesty, show your legality without showing anything else. You don't have to reveal everything to everyone at any time. Exactly. And this is something that, again, you know, going back to kind of the the Wall Street days, which as you can tell, were very informative and formative in all of this. But I think about the data sharing that you would have to do even just on a daily basis, right? So at the end of the day, you would have to reconcile all of your trades and you would have to acknowledge to your counterparties, you know, who you are and so on and so forth for a lot of the derivative products. And there, there are a lot of good reasons why you would have to do that. For example, you would have to make sure that you didn't have uh, an excess or outsized amount of counterparty risk with whomever you were facing on some of these swap trades poor controls around those types of risks were basically how, in part anyway, how Lehman Brothers happened. Go back mm-hmm. and watch The Big Short. It's kind of a great demonstration of, of how a lot of these uh, lack of risk controls ended up building up into all of this. But the problem was, as soon as you would disclose to your counterparty who you were so that they could keep track of their own risk, you were then basically showing them your poker hand. You could come back and use that against them the next day. They could come back and use that against you the next day. You know, there were all of these types of dynamics where some form of selective disclosure would have actually solved a lot of the very real problems and dynamics as, yeah, traders are facing each other, as banks are facing each other on these trades. And so, you know, that was a whole other side. I often talk about, oh, the Argentina story and, you know, this colleague that I had, but a lot of this more kind of, nitty gritty, almost like the really boring details of like how back office reconciliation works, which of course I hated having to deal with at the time, you know, but as the junior kid on the desk, like it all flowed downhill and (laughs) and it was my problem at the end of every day. That was actually as informative, I would say, in terms of how I think about where a lot of these applications might be interesting and become real as sort of Mm. the Argentina story. I want to kind of continue on this topic because like what we're talking about right now is the idea that like by enforcing some kind of KYC AML or like some of the regulation actually discloses a lot. But your experience in the financial industry, to me, as somebody who has not worked in it and who actually has like a little bit of like a negative view of it since I was quite young. Yeah. To me, it's the intransparency of it that is so dangerous 
And so it's it's so interesting that like what we're talking about now is the transparency, the attempt yeah. at transparency is the problem. But like, can you talk about that flip side? And maybe where does where does a ZKP flip it? The financial system is intransparent and yet privacy wrecking. It sounds yes. like yeah, so that's so weird. Totally. <laughs> That is such an interesting way of putting it, Anna. And that actually just, this is why I was so excited to come on here in this conversation. Because <laughs> that actually crystallizes something that I think a lot about, which is that to date, you know, sort of prior to the commercialization of things like zero knowledge proofs, the way that we talked about privacy was basically black or white. It was mm-hmm. this privacy and transparency were both these very crude tools that we could use to go after problems. But in every regard, you would end up, Josh, as you just said, with the worst of both worlds, right? And I think that that's (laughs) very true in uh, the financial services industry, where you're absolutely right. You know, so much of it, by necessity, I think in many ways, is so intransparent. You know, there isn't one big auditable record to show that all of these banks are solvent and to show even exactly how much liquidity is in the money supply of a given country or given currency. You know, there are all of these ways in which it's so opaque. And again, I think in many cases, there's actually decently reasonable uh, reasons for that. But then in other regards, in an attempt to make the financial services industry functioning. uh, And in order to be compliant and meet all of this sort of regulatory overhead and so forth, we bring in this very crude tool, in this case of transparency, and implement things like KYC and AML and implement capital requirements on banks and implement, you know, requirements of counterparty disclosure and all of these things that, again, it's weird to say that transparency is causing the problems, but because it's such a crude tool and because we haven't had this ability to fine tune what gets disclosed to who and when and why, because we haven't unlocked this whole kind of spectrum of possibility around privacy and transparency, both sides of it cause problems. And mm. that's actually not something that had even really clicked into place for me until you just said it, Anna. But I think that it's a really great demonstration of the problems. And there's one other thing that I think the financial system has done up to date too, and that's to be very patronizing to small investors. Oh, I think yeah. you really yeah. witnessed it this year. So it's like, let's let's say it's intransparent, except when it uses transparency as like a hammer, but then it also yes. patronizes folks that they be- like that are believed to not know their own ability to invest correctly without intermediaries. By the way, you're just describing my general feelings about the financial system, um, which is why I, I went to business school, but I had a, a bad attitude about it. So kind of weird. I, I was that. like a punk rock kid in a business school being like, fuck the man, and yet still had to get good grades and pass the test. So I was meanwhile, like the, the scared kid wearing an ill-fitting suit sitting in this like New York bank being like, what am I doing here? Like, this is messed (laughs) up. I kind of hate this, but like very quietly and all the time, like with a smile on her face. So yeah, I I respect the the open, blatant punk rock attitude. I wish I'd been cool enough to, to adopt that, Anna. Um, Well, you probably got better grades because it's a a weird attitude to have in a university (laughs) program. I also realized at the end of all of this, it's like, what am I trying to do? And I'm like, business, wait, what? I wish I had studied history. <laughs> oh, my but anyway, God. back to this. So yeah. the patronizing, like, the patronizing, let's, so yeah. this, that this is, I mean, this is my projection on the financial industry as it was. Let's think about and talk about like what, what has changed. I mean, blockchain brought transparency in a massive way, right? Radical like everything auditable. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, it had pseudonymity, sort of like seeming privacy, but that has been all but debunked at this point as anything real. Josh, what would you say? Do you do you think you can still exist pseudonymously on the blockchain? Yeah, yeah, I, I, you can, but the amount of effort that it takes, to me, it's like similar to the amount of effort it takes to browse the web and pseudonymously or anonymously. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, you know, you, you, you really have to put the work in yeah. 
to do it right. And, and I certainly felt that way. You know, I would say that, and obviously I'm a bit biased from my experience, but like I would say Zcash is one of the examples of like the easiest possible path toward preserving your anonymity if you just use shielded addresses. Mm -hmm. But even the act of just using shielded addresses and the educational challenge of transparent versus shielded, I mean, all those things are just like, it's a giant can of worms that uh, I, I still think to this day is not really resolved on Zcash and certainly not resolved for privacy approaches atop other blockchains that have easy uh, base layer data tracking or data collection mm. ability for, for lots of folks. So, and, and it's, I, I definitely had personally this uh, misunderstanding when I started early on thinking that like Bitcoin was a purely private system. And, and I think lots of early Bitcoiners uh, had that impression when they started What did you out. do, Josh? Yeah, you know <laughs> well, it's not, written nothing, on the blockchain nothing, nothing. now. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. You just have to, you know, I'm sure uh, if, if you see men in suits leading me off, off camera, tell, tell my wife and kids I love them. Okay. Uh, no, but I, I, uh, but I, I think that that is certainly the, the impression that most, most people have. And then once you kind of wake, it's sort of like, I think people that are somewhat on autopilot about the way that, that are, their activity on the web is tracked, mm-hmm. like they don't really understand it. And then they do. And um, that doesn't make the tool of, you know, the web as it exists today or Bitcoin as it exists today, any less powerful, but it does change the way that you perceive it and interact with it. And then I think start to uh, approach, well, how can we fix these things? What are, what are ways in which we can improve this? And I mean, yeah, to be honest, like, and I'd love to hear Jill's thoughts about the state of DeFi today, but the way that DeFi works today, like terrifies me, absolutely terrifies me. Let's go back to that finance to now, it's like the transparency is there. So it's not as intransparent as the larger financial banks and entities, like with these big power makers. Now we know their addresses. We know the power makers' addresses. And it's far less patronizing to investors in a lot of ways. There is a bound, yeah. the boundary is technical. Yeah, yeah I guess you're right. <laughs> but like in general, like, you know, a lot of people can jump in if they want to, if they want to put in the time For to learn. Sure. Totally. They're not actually blocked at the door because they don't have enough money, which the other mm-hmm. system seems to block them. But I want to continue on the question that Josh just asked, because on the privacy front, it's the far end of the transparency spectrum, the privacy transparency oh, spectrum it's a mess. right now. Yeah. It's, I mean, I was just talking a moment ago about how on Wall Street, it was this issue of at the end of every day, you would have to disclose you know, who you were and sort of your identity, basically, and then therefore kind of your whole poker hand of what you were doing to your counterparties, who, to be clear, are like your competitors sitting across the poker table from you. DeFi is like that on like a continuous, ongoing, rolling basis. Like you can see in real time who's doing what and where, and you can back into why. And, you know, minor extractable value is, is, you know, just one of the many ways that this... Yeah, such a topic. Almost worried. I'm almost worried about having brought it up because I know that you've gone into so many deep dives on this on your show, and I will not be able to to hold water. But you know, it's just to, just to bring home the point though of why this is such a problem, like you can't have that level of transparency in a really functional and incentive aligned financial system. But you do need to be able to have some degree of like auditability within that system optimally in order to prove that, you know, okay, the system is working and, you know, there aren't bad actors sort of breaking the rules within the system and, you know, there's sufficient liquidity and and so forth. And so that paradox of how do we keep the right things private, Mm -hmm. but also make other things auditable and provable, like, that is where it gets really interesting. And that's where, again, to me, I just come back to like, we have somehow been endowed with this like magical math <laughs> that that can seemingly enable some of this. And that's the area that I'm really excited to be exploring. I want to add one more thing, though, just quickly, which is to Josh's point, though, it's such an educational barrier in the first place to educate people about why this is needed and why Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies and blockchains are not in fact Mm -hmm. private. They are fully transparent and fully auditable. You know, every time I talk to someone who's not directly in the crypto space, 
I am always sort of simultaneously frustrated and also blown away by the fact that I'll say to them, oh, well, like, you know how Bitcoin is not actually private, like it's fully transparent. And I'll have people literally reply to, you know, very little context on the crypto space, be like, no, Jill, you're wrong. (laughs) It's fully private. I'm like, ah, it's actually really not. (laughs) And then, you know, you have moments like the, like the ransomware thing a, a few weeks ago that was tracked down, I think, I think using Chainalysis or, or at least a similar tool within a matter of like hours. And the whole mainstream media is like, how is this possible? It's like, well, this is kind of a known thing about Bitcoin at this point. And so, you know, Josh, I think that you bring up a great point that the first hurdle in a lot of this when it's when it comes time for actual adoption is just going to be not just education, but almost actually like bringing people back a step Mm -hmm. to unlearn what they think they know. Um, And so that's a really interesting challenge of all of this as well. So going back to kind of the the DeFi paradigm, it not having privacy baked in at all. Like it's not, it doesn't seem to be one of the core tenants of DeFi. Be private, no way. Like everything is very public. In a way, like the, the games and the strategies know, the actors know that they're public. They, they may even use it as marketing. Uh, Tarun's brought that up a couple times where like they'll, ma- they'll do a strategy to get people to follow them. But one of the points, I, I mention this kind of all the time on the show, but the idea of trying to put privacy on after seems to be very difficult. How can we bake privacy in at the beginning? Like, I don't know that we can do it in the existing DeFi games, but maybe in something else. Like, do you have any ideas on how, how to do that? That's a huge question, I realize. Yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) It actually reminds me of and kind of brings me back to really where we started the show 45 minutes ago, where I was talking about, you know, I started working on Wall Street in this sort of post-08 paradigm where all of this new regulation, all of these new protocols around what needed to be disclosed and recorded and so forth uh, were coming into place. And the old system, you know, the old guard was kind of railing against it. And, you know, to a lot of people, it didn't really make sense. Then there were also just major, major, major logistical challenges of implementing these new protocols and and rule sets and what have you, you know, if you look at the budget that went into compliance across banks between like 2008 and 2012, I mean, I'm sure it was uh, just astronomical. And I think it's always interesting to think about those parallels of like, I'm convinced that there is very little that is new in the world <laughs> that we're doing for for truly the first time. And I think that that's a really interesting parallel to draw of like, okay, if we were to try and introduce sort of, you know, new protocols around privacy and what has to be private and what has to be transparent into cryptocurrency and into the DeFi ecosystems, like what are the instances where these types of shifts have happened uh, in other places and other financial systems. And I think that's one mm. of them. And I think it does speak to the challenges there. Now, to get to your question of like, how do we actually go about that? I mean, I think that there are a few kind of principles that I have around how this will have to play out. And then there's a lot of unknown space. <laughs> I would say one of the principles that I have, though, is that you can't just come in and reinvent something wholesale altogether at this point. You have to be building off of what exists already. And that goes, you know, very broadly. We could be talking about anything really in technology broadly, but I think it certainly applies here to the DeFi space where liquidity is king, right? It doesn't matter sort of what features and functionality you have. If you don't have liquidity and if you're not tapping into and connecting into that liquidity that already exists, you're going to have a really hard time of it. And so I think that that's one thing that I think about is just as we seek to roll out and implement some of these privacy solutions that are coming down the pipeline, like we have to be thinking about how those can interoperate with the existing Mm -hmm. system and how they can draw liquidity from there. That's probably the key principle, really, that I would point to in terms of how I think about these things being brought to market. The other thing that I would say is just, 
you know, you have to make sure that you're solving the right privacy problem for the right set of users. Because again, to this point of like, we're suddenly for the first time opening up this whole spectrum of possibility around privacy of like, what is private to whom under what circumstances and when, and then what is still auditable and transparent. And there are so many little devilishly tricky ways, I think, to get that wrong. And so you have to be really clear about, okay, am I serving the person in the hyperinflationary country who's trying to get their money offshore and is worried about the government being able to have insight into that? Or am I serving the big bad crypto hedge fund mm. who doesn't want to be leaking all of their alpha or be dealing with MEV problems? You know, those are two very different privacy paradigms. Not to mention, you know, the the whole kind of scope of, of other players in the space that you could imagine applying this to. But I think it's really important to be very specific about who you're serving and what that looks like. Do you see privacy as taking a place in the DeFi ecosystem? Or could you, I know I'm asking to like predict the future here, but like, do we want to see privacy in every part of DeFi systems? I think yes and no. I think there are certain areas where it is very clear to me that privacy will play a role and will have to play a role. I think that privacy is one part, perhaps one small part of solving MEV problems. Mm -hmm. um, I think that privacy is going to become very important, again, as the players in the space become more sophisticated and become more sensitive about leaking their trades and sort of leaking that alpha, not to get too charcony on that. But then I think that there's also going to be a myriad different ways in which the no longer quite so blunt tool of transparency will also still play a very important role. And so, you know, just as today, just as we have, you know, sort of on one end of the spectrum, fully private Zcash, and then, you know, we have things a little bit more in the middle, although really today it's, it is still sort of the two ends of the spectrum, fully private Zcash or Monero or whatever. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have things that are fully transparent. I think that that spectrum is going to open up in terms of just like what assets look like and in terms of the traceability of them. I also think that applies to DeFi applications where I could imagine a fully private DEX that's operating effectively as a dark pool. I could imagine, you know, basically Uniswap as it exists today and other decentralized exchanges. But then I can also imagine a whole range of things in the middle where, you know, privacy is being applied maybe to make trades private to sort of the broader universe, but maybe maybe there are still certain things being proven to counterparties around the liquidity profile of those counterparties or around even like the jurisdictions of those counterparties. I could imagine some of this auditability functionality or, you know, even disclosures being made to whoever it is that's running the decentralized exchange uh, to bring it into compliance while also still maintaining privacy to the broader world. Like there are a lot of different ways that I could imagine that playing out. And so I guess hopefully to kind of answer your question, Anna, like I don't think it's going to be a blanket thing in one way or the mm -hmm. other, but I think that there's going to be, yeah, this whole spectrum of things. And I think that it's going to be then a question of educating people and making sure that it's transparent, I guess, of like what people are interacting with and what the regulatory and compliance paradigm of that is, and then what they're giving up on the other side of that. Um, that's how I would imagine it playing out within DeFi. Do you think that given what you know about the existing large players in the financial space, do, do you think that privacy is actually a must have for them to adopt crypto? Or do you think they will just like ignore their past ways of doing business and jump in? Yeah, I think that these large financial players, you know, especially on the hedge fund side where it's a little bit more of the Wild West still, there there's not quite as much scrutiny as, for example, the big banks are under. I think that they are going to go wherever they can find returns. And I think that even if privacy is not rolled out in the way that that they might want it to be, you know, even if they have sort of outstanding concerns about data leakage and scrutiny and whatever, I think, yeah, they are uh, <laughs> sort of capitalist sharks 
sufficiently wow. to the extent that <laughs> that they will jump in. But that having been said, I do think that, you know, even just from like a compliance point of view, there are certain things around data privacy, right? That a lot of these big companies just have no choice, again, Mm -hmm. even from like a legal enforcement perspective to comply with. And so I think that that's where a lot of the limitations will come in. And I think that also just from a comfort perspective, you know, never has anyone been able to marry the type of functionality in terms of openness, in terms of auditability, in terms of whatever else that the crypto space can offer with both data privacy and also compliance before. And I think that if I look at the space today and I look at who the major players are within it, which is still really, it's like a lot of individuals on some level. It's a lot of funds, kind of informal funds, if you can even call them that, that have cropped up around the space. And then also more formal funds, you know, whether it's venture funds, hedge funds, whatever, that have cropped up around the space. But not a lot of big incumbents are using this stuff. You know, not a lot of big incumbents are using decentralized exchanges. You don't see big corporations using stable coins for, Mm -hmm. you know, cross-border payroll or anything like that yet. Like, you know, there's still so much space to grow uh, the user base of this ecosystem. And I do think that that more broadly will come with the ability to marry, again, data privacy on one side and compliance on the other side. And I think that that's, again, to the spectrum idea, I think that that's something that that gets opened up there. Cool. A quick follow-up to that. Do you, do you think that it's possible to, given that our industry is so keen on clever incentive alignment, right? And I think we've talked, maybe there's been a, a little discussion about this on the podcast before, but I'm wondering if your view of like, do you think there's there's anything that we can do from a cypherpunk perspective uh, that's purely incentive alignment based to encourage people to adopt privacy preserving technologies? Because when you look at like the things that exist, you know, on like, for example, Tornado Cash on Ethereum is significantly more expensive to use if if you want to transfer money that way, even though it, it provides e-cash right. like privacy guarantees, right? And, and so I'm wondering, like, do you think it's it's possible for that kind of uh, solution to emerge where there is this incentive somehow that is not like a regulatory incentive? Although I do want to touch on the regulatory thing in a bit, but, but, but yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So I love that notion. I am skeptical though. Sure. And I... You know, this goes back also a little bit to Anna's question earlier around how do we go about bootstrapping privacy into things Mm -hmm. that already exist? You know, in many ways, that's what Tornado Cash is doing, Mm -hmm. you know, creating this privacy-oriented stablecoin. I think that incentives, I think in the way that you're alluding to, Josh, of, you know, sort of like airdrops and the like, like, look, I think that they play an important role or, you know, maybe it's even more complex than airdrops, right? Like maybe it's something more ongoing, but I think that they can play a crucial role in bootstrapping a a user base around an application or bootstrapping liquidity around it. That has clearly played out very well for a lot of projects in the DeFi space. But I think that with something as hairy and as ideological as privacy and in some cases also as practical as privacy, I think that that is at best a short-term solution to sort of get a flywheel going. But if that flywheel isn't going to keep spinning on its own in the sense of people continuing to want to use this, then I think that we're going to be challenged. I think that the more important thing to focus on is just almost like user experience parity, I would say. Mm. Uh, as opposed to creating incentives of like, oh, you're going to get like this frosting and the cherry on top and whatever. It's like, just make the underlying cake as good as the the pre-existing one, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I think that you're right to mention the challenge with Tornado Cash of, of the cost of using it. I think as opposed to creating some sort of incentive or rebate around it, we just need to make the user experience of it 
as good as that of using something like USDC if we want to worry about adoption, mm. which is challenging. But given sort of the pace at which breakthroughs seem to be happening in the space, again, to be clear, I'm not a cryptographer myself, but my understanding of these things, I, I'm optimistic that we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, same here. It's kind of a cool way of thinking about it. It's You're sort of sneaking it in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People don't exactly. need to know that it's there, but it's actually changing the paradigm from the Web 2 kind of data mining version of everything. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's true sort of broadly if you think about how we tend to conceive of privacy or lack thereof in the way that we use technology today, like, you know, sure, in the last few years, you know, especially with Cambridge Analytica and so forth, like privacy has become more of a topic. But I'll be honest, even though I kind of love this campaign, I think that the whole Apple campaign around privacy is weird to me. Hmm. It's like, I, I don't think about privacy really when I'm using iMessage or when, you know, I'm taking photos on my iPhone, like I do, I so do. (laughs) I know I'm not doing a very good job, but I'm totally aware every time I send a message that's like silly or at all, like something I wouldn't say on Twitter, I'm like super like, oh man, like I constantly make jokes about someone reading my like texts and yeah, it's always on my mind. I don't know about you, Josh. I feel like you're further on that spectrum than I am. I'm crazy about it, but I know I'm crazy about (laughs) it, right? right? Like I know I'm paranoid (laughs) and nuts. I know too. (laughs) But but no, that is, but but there is, I I do wonder, because I think that both views are are valid in my, at least the people that I interact with on a uh, daily basis, you know, like, so there's some people when I tell them, I don't want to use Zoom for obvious reasons to me. And they're like, what is wrong with you? Like, um, I, I want to be able to just video chat. Let's do it. Right. So I can see the, both both perspectives. There's like a whole thing here to unpack yeah. that I so want to dive into. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> running out of time. But I feel like that's, I feel like this is a really interesting dichotomy between me and and the two of you about how we sort of approach technology and usability and, you know, what we're optimizing for and where privacy sits within Mm. that, that I think is actually indicative of sort of the two camps that Mm. crypto users tend to sit in of like, for me, I want the thing to work and I want it to be delightful and I want there to be reasonable privacy assumptions around it. But I at Mm. no point want to be thinking about like the optimization of privacy within this thing that I'm using. Whereas I think that the two of you are probably (laughs) more representative, certainly of the audience of this podcast, but I think, you know, possibly also more representative of the crypto industry in general, where like, privacy is something that you are actively optimizing for. And I think that there are two almost sort of different design philosophies almost mm. as, as you look at the way that privacy should play out. I would I would make a pretty strong distinction though. I think Josh and I are not on the same level because I do use Zoom. And I, I think for me, it's like, <laughs> I'm conscious of it. I want usability. So I won't go to the lengths that maybe Josh, you'll go to, to yeah. preserve privacy for oh, sure yeah. not. Like I, I have yeah. to, like, I want to move quickly. I need things to work quickly and I'll, but every time I do it, I'm hyper aware of it. And that yeah. might also be because I have this podcast and because I talk about it all yeah. the time, but like, yeah. I'm, I'm right. just aware. Like I just, I have the idea that somebody could always be watching it's kind of screwed up. Like it's not the best yeah. way to live. <laughs> well, and, and I take it like for me, it's, it's, you're it's, not wrong. Though. Yeah, they you're, probably not, yeah, are. Yeah, you're not wrong. And, and in my case, like I take it to the extreme that for me, every time I send an obfuscated cryptocurrency transaction, and it's usually for something trivial, like sticker packs yeah. or merch, you know, um, <laughs> but, but it's a political act of I'm sending this, you can't look at it. Uh, or it would take mm. a lot for you to look at it. And I and I get a lot of intrinsic enjoyment out of making it <laughs> like a political act every time that I, you know, send a transaction that is supposed to be like, you know, cash to me, but electronically. And yeah. I think I think that's how yeah. I felt, you I know, when that. I was doing, you know, when I was doing early Bitcoin transactions without realizing that they weren't private. Um, Josh, but, do you feel like that kind of was that, did you feel like you were rug pulled a little bit on that? Like, did you feel fooled when you found out? <laughs> 
No, I just, I, I felt, uh, I felt ignorant, I guess, okay. early on, you know, cause I wasn't, I wouldn't call it like a, a rug pull necessarily <laughs> as much as it was a, a teachable moment for me. Okay. <laughs> and, and most, uh, you know, I, I'm still a huge, we all went we, through that. We all went through it. And yeah. I think, I think people yeah. who are still, I'm a still a huge Bitcoin fan because I think they're features of the Bitcoin system that actually aren't emulated in any other protocol. And we're probably very difficult to emulate another protocol, despite, I think, the perception that it's a old and boring, you know, protocol. There's a lot, if you've you know, been here for a while, there's a lot that you find uh, very uh, appealing and strong about the way that it's a very socially resilient protocol in a lot of ways. But it is, it is I think, that everyone, everyone that, that appreciates it that way also understands, like, there are fundamental privacy issues that can't be solved easily compared to, to newer problems. And you just have to like live with that, that knowledge mm. and be a little sad about it. I, you know, it's just, it's all part of, I think, you know, just like learning the web wasn't really that private. It's sort of the same kind of journey that people go through. To switch gears for a little bit, Jill, you've talked about how uh, regulation is going to be a core part of DeFi in the future. I would love to get your perspective on how we can educate regulators in such a way that we get the ideal kind of regulation for for DeFi? And also, I want to know in your view, like, what does that ideal regulation actually look like? And as, as, you know, as close to brass tacks as you can get in terms of how, you know, you would even go about, you know, deploying some sort of like regulatory compliant Uniswap, for example, how does that look to you? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess first and foremost, I want to say when I say I think that DeFi is going to be regulated, that is not in any way a normative statement on my part. That's not what I want. That's not what I think should happen necessarily. How are you going to regulate DeFi, Joe? (laughs) I think it's I think it's coming. Sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a huge opportunity there to educate policymakers and regulators about what this is as an enabling technology to enable new types of oversight and enforcement that weren't possible before. And again, specifically what that means to me is regulation and enforcement that only collects the necessary, the bare minimum Mm. information that you need in order to make a judgment about what someone is doing on this system or within this within this paradigm. And so, you know, what you can imagine there is something like a credentialing system, right? Where I might get onboarded via, say, Coinbase as, you know, an American who is KYC and AML'd, and I might be issued, therefore, a credential to whatever my, my address is that then ideally I could go around the Web3 ecosystem and demonstrate this credential uh, within the various transactions that I'm doing that could then be audited by sort of select parties to be able to verify like, okay, she was onboarded via Coinbase, you know, because Coinbase issued her this credential, like she's good to go and good to be doing the transactions that she is. You could also imagine even taking that one step further where Maybe I've also been onboarded via CoinList and CoinList has also issued me like an accredited, you know, back to your kind of the finance, the financial system patronizes people, Anna. (laughs) I've also been issued maybe an accredited investor status credential, and that would allow me to go around and, and invest in private offerings and things like that. That is a huge leap from the system as it exists today, that's asking regulators to revisit all of their standards around PII and and personal data custody and who has to have it on their books and who has to be kind of the book of record on it and all of that. This credentialing system that I'm describing is not at all how things work today. But I think that that would be an example of like a very favorable outcome for everyone because Companies don't want to have all of that data necessarily on their books all the time. You know, the interoperability between companies around KYC and and identity management is a nightmare as it exists today. And I, as the, the user, 
don't want to be having to to re-verify my data with with everyone as we go. But like once something like that happens, I, to me, just bringing it back to ZKPs, because that's where what you're sort of saying is like that might come into play where you have to get accredited somewhere. But I love the idea of like, so sure, you were accredited somewhere in some capacity. Exactly. But then having the ability to use that in all sorts of places without revealing anything else. Exactly. Other than someone legitimate that according to the system said you're okay. Exactly. And that being a little bit your passport, but yeah. private. Yeah. That's where, yeah, I mean, exactly. That's a very important point. And to bring it back to where ZKPs come into this. And I think that that is the real crux of this to me, of how can we make this such that I'm not broadcasting that information to everyone all the time as we go. Yeah. And maybe that's where privacy becomes like key to DeFi. Maybe it's through regulation coming in. It's almost like if regulators could be educated to understand that cool dynamic that ZKPs offer, maybe they would be up for it because it's like, okay, you want some sort of KYC type thing and you have the onboard ramps. Okay. But let's make sure that we actually also are protecting people. They talk about protecting investors. Let's like really understand what protecting investors means protecting business interests, protecting all sorts of things that they care about. Use your knowledge proofs on all the kind of other levels potentially for that. Yeah. This is my hope. Yeah. We don't we don't have enough time to go into it enough. I'm so <laughs> no rushing against no, the clock. Exactly, what a bummer. Though. And I think that, you know, I think that it's gonna be an interesting question as we move forward here of just how do we frame all of this? Because I do think that framing it as privacy technology, even though I've used the word privacy eight hundred times in the last forty five minutes here, yeah. I think that that could pose challenges to people who've come to learn privacy as a bad word. And so instead, we need to be reframing things around the combination of auditability and data security and protection and all of that. But for another time. Yeah, consumer protection, I think, would be a pretty awesome angle for yeah. that. Even though I don't want to I don't want to live in a compliant world, to be clear. <laughs> but but uh, I, understand, I understand why it has to be that way. All right. So we're pretty much at time, but there is one topic that we have to mention because it's kind of awesome that the three of us are on this call together and we are also all involved in an organization. Josh, you mentioned this earlier. So the MENA Foundation, you are a board member there. Jill, you're also a board member there. And I'm actually an advisor to the project. Awesome. So that's something that yeah. kind of bring, ties us all together. I am curious, like, what is this experience for you being part of a project, a ZK-focused project already? Josh has obviously had that experience before. Mina is the the first, but not the last, uh, ZK-oriented project that that I, I'm working with. And I think for me, it's just crystallized some of these challenges around, you know, really defining your user and your use case. And I think that that's something that, in many ways, the MENA Foundation has done an amazing job of, and, and O1 Labs and the rest of the, the community around the project has done a great job of really identifying the problem that they're going after, which in this case is a combination of privacy and also unwieldy blockchain sizes. But it also just crystallizes for me again how early we are as an industry in terms of kind of educating around and evangelizing around these types of problems. And I think that there's a lot of scope for opportunity there. And I think it's coming. Cool. In the next few months, I hope to be doing a full episode on the MENA project as well to explore some of those use cases. It is known for very experimental, very kind of like new use cases for ZKPs and privacy tech. And I'm excited to dig into that. Sadly, we don't have enough time on this show to go into it with the three of us, but I thought it was worth mentioning anyway. So we're at the end of the interview, but Jill, thank you so much for coming on to the show and having this conversation with us. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And Josh, thanks for coming back. Yeah. I hope to see you again soon. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. And maybe in the coming year, you'll have more time for crypto stuff? Yes, absolutely. I have have plans once my newborn starts sleeping through the night. Okay. Makes sense. Very cool. All right. I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs>